Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Sue Grafton died on December 28, 2017, at the age of 77. Best known as the author of a series of mysteries featuring the detective Kinsey Milhone, Sue Grafton was at the forefront of the Sisters in Crime movement, women authors who wrote crime fiction, mostly about women detectives. Starting with her first mystery, A is for Alibi, in 1982, and continuing the alphabet through Y is for Yesterday. The final book in the series, Z is for Zero, was never written. On April 17, 1989, on a book tour for F is for Fugitive, and again on April 13, 1992, for I is for Innocent, my former co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I spoke with Sue Grafton about the history of her career and her writing process. This podcast is taken from those two interviews. Both interviews separately and in their entirety can be heard as downloads on bookwaves.com. You grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. I did. And you're the daughter of a mystery writer. Mm -hmm. Did you read a lot of mysteries when you were growing up? Yeah. My parents were very passionate about books. And in those days, you could get a paperback novel for a quarter. So my father would walk us up to the drugstore after dinner and buy stacks of paperbacks. In our house, we had one of those revolving drugstore racks, and my mother would read these books, and she would mark them dirty or dull or good. And my sister and I were allowed to read anything we wanted because their theory was that after we had read enough dull and dirty books, we would prefer the good ones, which is, in fact, what happened. But while the other little girls in my neighborhood were reading Nancy Drew, I was reading Mickey Spillane. What did you think of Mickey Spillane? I liked it a lot. I can still remember I had the jury. I was really bug-eyed when I read that one. Did you start writing at all or think about writing mysteries at the time? No. I started writing what they call mainstream fiction. And I had a couple of books published when I was in my 20s. But it really wasn't right for me. I knew my days were numbered. The second of the books... Uh, the screen rights were bought, and I ended up co-authoring the screenplay. That was Lolly Madonna, yes. XXX. Yes, thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> we still see that on the late show sometimes. But honestly, sometimes I get a check for as much as $73 from that, even after all these years. You didn't like it, though? Uh, no, I didn't. But, you know, I look back on it. That book had 14 characters, and I would never in my right mind do a film script with 14 fully fleshed out characters, but it was a learning experience and it got me launched as a writer in terms of supporting myself. How did it come about that you wound up writing the screenplay? Because I assume uh, that's what brought you to Hollywood. Yes. A British film producer bought the rights and came over to this country and asked me to help him do it since the book was largely about Appalachia and he felt I was perhaps better qualified to write about it than he, although that's not necessarily true. But I did learn screenplay for him, and I've been earning a living doing movies for television since then. 
some of the ones you've done include A Caribbean Mystery, which was, I believe, Helen Hayes as Miss Marple. That's right. That's right. And Sparkling Cyanide with... um, Anthony Andrews. Anthony Andrews, yeah. Raffin. Raffin, yeah. Yes, my husband, Steve Humphrey, and I do those together. And, uh, in fact, uh, Caribbean Mystery was filmed about half a mile from our house in Santa Barbara, but you would Mm. never know from looking at it. How did you rework Agatha Christie there to do that? Well, that was a bit of a trick because the American producers wanted to update that and make it American instead of British. So a purist, an Agatha Christie purist, would be properly horrified. But our finding was that when you dismantle some of those books, the the A-plus books do not get sold to television. So what we end up with in television are the lesser works. And some of those, when you dismantle them in order to construct a screenplay, Mm -hmm. you discover there are egregious errors or, you know, gaps in the logic, and it's very problematic to make them come together. Also, Agatha Christie is not famous for her characterization, and that gets to be a bit of a problem, too. Well, there's a, a certain process that takes place that you, you speak of as deconstruction Yes. followed by. Just if you talk about that whole process a little okay. bit. Okay. Well, I, I will if I'm able. Uh, we'll just work our way around that one. One of the things I learned in Hollywood is structure, and I think that's what you look at when you take a mystery and disassemble it and put it back together again. I think the requirements of film are very different than those of the printed word. And what looks one way on paper will play very differently, which is why there's often such a discrepancy between a written book and the filmed version of it. But I think it's been helpful for me to learn to write dramatically. It makes you think in scenes. It makes you think in terms of how a story rises you know, to a payoff at the end. And I think in that respect, the mystery and the screenplay have some things in common in that both need to be very carefully structured. Sue Grafton, you also wrote, it says, the story credit for Svengali. Was that the Peter O'Toole thing? That, let me think, who finally played in that, because that was a script I did years ago, and uh, in the end, they took it away from me, and another writer did it. It may well have been. Did you go back to uh, the early movies, or how did you create Uh, I went back to the original, and looked at that and again it was a story that was updated and made contemporary it was fun to do but it was one of those hollywood stories where mercifully we blank on that after all these years <laughs> you, you didn't go back and read the george du maurier novel or yes did you? yes what oh, did you yeah. think of it uh, it was very antique <laughs> and in fact it it was fun to to modernize that or make mm-hmm. it more contemporary you were in Hollywood for uh, quite a few years, and you say you still make yes. uh, living in there. What's your favorite Hollywood horror story that you've Uh-oh. witnessed? <laughs> um, everybody has them. <laughs> well, I have been fortunate in that I've worked with some very nice people and some very smart people. I did once work for a man mm, who, who shall be nameless, lest his lawyers are listening. But I was always very dutiful, and yet I ended up in a... They brought me out to do a ripoff of some quite famous movie, which I was dutifully typing away at. And every day this man would call me into his office and 
tell me how the story should go. And at night, they rented me this terrible little room in the studio, and I would sit and type and turn the pages in the next day. And he, every morning, he would say to me, major flaws, major flaws, and we would start all over again. Finally, I had a 4 o'clock plane, and I met with this, these two men at probably 1 or 1.30 and got major flaws again. And I just put my briefcase together and marched out of the room, and he has been furious with me to this day, uh, calling me some quite nasty names. But it was the only time I have ever walked away from a job, and I felt quite righteous about it. To get back to the beginning of your career, you mentioned as as a child in Louisville, um, reading Mickey Spillane and all of yes. these other good, bad, or dirty books, yes. good, boring, or dirty yes. were, were the three classifications. If you talk, for one thing, a little bit more about that reading, and secondly, there's a long biographical gap between a little girl reading Mickey Spillane and a young woman writing Lolly Madonna. Yeah. Well, I, uh, like many girls in my era which seems quite a long time ago, when I began to think about writing, the books that were being written were all about two men on the road, and I wasn't allowed to hitchhike, so I thought I had not a chance of a career in the field of writing. But I imagined at that time I would teach or do something equally benign. I uh, was always passionate about writing, but it just never occurred to me that one could make a living at it. So for many years, I worked in the medical field as a cashier and a hospital admissions clerk, and I worked in doctor's offices and would do my writing at night because I was at the same time married and raising children. So most of my writing took place after the kids were in bed and the cat had been put out on the back step. And this is where your, your early novels came from, though. Yes, although the first uh, was about the Depression, uh, which I wrote when I was in my early 20s, knowing virtually nothing about the Depression. Mm-hmm. But I was so innocent in those days, it just never occurred to me that one had to do research. And now I'm very meticulous about research. I really spend quite a lot of time trying to be informed about what I'm doing. But the two books were published when I was in my 20s. Then I made the detour into screenplays. And now I suspect I'll be doing books almost exclusively. Do you feel that you're part of the famous or infamous Southern literary tradition? I wish I could say I was. I doubt it. I doubt they would consider me a a bona fide member. In the late 70s, after I'd been working in Hollywood for seven or eight years, I began to feel that the writing by committee was very destructive, and it seemed to me if I wanted to salvage and redeem whatever writing skills I had left, I had best get back to solo writing. And what they had been telling me at that time was that I was good at character, but I couldn't do plot. So it seemed to me that if I were going to teach myself how to plot, the one place I had best learn it would be in the mystery novels. So that's why I chose that, and also because my father had done it. So that's how I segued from the film work into the novel again. A is for Alibi introduces, I guess we're appropriately coming up on that now, introduces a character named Kinsey Milhone, who you've said is very similar to yourself. Yes. How'd you come up with the name Kinsey and Milhone? Uh, Kinsey, I, I was reading my Hollywood Reporter, and they always have a section where they announce birth. So there was a couple in Hollywood who apparently named their daughter Kinsey, and it, it was one of those things when I saw it, I thought, aha, that's for me. So I snagged it. Later, I, I added the Milhone because I like the way the sounds played. Uh, I've been accused of being a yuppie over that one, but I promise it was not 
for those reasons. But I kept the name for a period of time just sitting on my desk before I understood where it was going to fit into my life. Why did you call Santa Barbara Santa Teresa? Uh, in part because Ross McDonald had called it Santa Teresa and I was paying homage to him. In part because I find it liberating to assign other names to towns. I'm not writing about the real police in Santa Barbara. I am not writing about city government. If I want to, because I call it Santa Teresa, I can change the weather. I'm very powerful. <laughs> I can move buildings. If I need a chase sequence and the geography is not laid out properly, I can alter it. It keeps me from being uh, self-conscious. It, it's really very freeing. Sometimes I drive down to Kinsey's neighborhood and I can't find her building. It's very distressing, you know, because I feel, feel I've invented it quite nicely. <laughs> For those of us who uh, who know Santa Barbara a bit, what is her actual neighborhood? Her office is at 903 State Street, which is up above uh, the Crown Jewelry Store. There's a mm-hmm. coffee shop called Little Audrey's. Oh, I know that. Sure. Uh-huh. Oh, that's upstairs. She's in that building near yes. uh, Joseph's the Provider. It, well, he's gone now. It's his place. Oh, how <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> yeah. All right. So she's in, a, in an ex-bookstore. That's right. That's great. <laughs> she lives on Mason Street near a sort of patch of land that is actually Indian territory, as I understand it, near near the Ambassador by the Sea Motel, mm-hmm. which fronts on to Cabrillo. See, I change these names I get so I can't remember what reality is. <laughs> but uh, there isn't actually a building down there. I find it very distressing. Maybe they'll build me one one of these days. She's 32 years old in A is for Alibi, and we yes. were talking about this just before we went on the air. And you have these books appear a few months after, so now it's still early 1983. Yes. Do you plan on having it become a period piece now? No, and I'm going to speed the process up to some extent, but it seems to me the advantage of fictional character is they don't have to age at the same rate we do, nor does she ever have to gain weight Mm -hmm. or do anything unpleasant. But I don't intend to write period pieces. Gia's for Gumshoe takes place in May of 83, and I may jump forward six or eight months when the next book comes along. I want to head back to A is for Alibi. A couple of points. First off, how did that particular book come about? I read that it involved an idea you had and how you felt about an ex-husband. Yes. And also the title, uh, where did the A, B, C, D, E uh, come from? Well, part of that, the title itself, that sequence came because my father had written a couple of books based on a nursery rhyme. His two novels in his very short-lived series were The Rat Began to Gnaw the Rope and The Rope Began to Hang the Butcher. And I, at the time, I was considering the the genesis of A.S. for Alibi, I had been reading the Edward Gorey category cartoons, and it was one of those things where the two thoughts just came together. I I wish I could report a blinding flash of light, because I look back on it, and it seems to me a very brilliant marketing strategy, but at the time, it just seemed like a fun idea. I understand since then that Lawrence Treat has done some short stories, V as in victim, Mm -hmm. H as in homicide. But as far as I know, he was not writing about a series character, and the alphabetizing was not sequential. But I had been going through a bitter divorce at that period of time, and in those days I didn't know how to fight. I am much better equipped now. But I... uh, used to spend a lot of time lying in bed thinking of ways to kill him. 
And since I am, in fact, such a law-abiding little bun, I realized that I would never get away with it. So it seemed to me the next best thing was to put it in a book and get paid for it, you see. And truly, I've launched a whole new career. I must say, I made this statement on a radio station in Milwaukee, and the lines started lighting up, and I was taken so to task for admitting I had homicidal urges. <laughs> so I say that if your phone lines start blinking, I'm leaving this room. Well, were the, were the callers calling to say, me too, or were they calling oh, to express no. rage? They were calling to say, how dare you? How, how dare you even think this? That's right. Yeah, and I thought, listen, I didn't do it. I just thought about it, but that was not good enough. I was really, I got flop sweat over that interview. I'm telling really? you. Really? Oh, it was just appalling. Just out of uh, curiosity, or maybe a little more malice than curiosity, <laughs> do you recall, was there a predominant gender mix among those callers? Uh, predominantly male. And, and as it turned out, the interviewer ended up saying to the people on the radio, well, it's not easy to get guests for this show, you know. <laughs> I thought I would die. Oh, it was the worst interview I've ever had. If, if that had been a, a male mystery author who had told the identical story about how I was so mad at my wife going through a divorce that I wanted to kill her, but of course I couldn't, so I wrote the novel mm-hmm. instead. Do you think the response would have been the same? I'm not sure. I think I sound like a pushover, and I have a slight accent that some people may hear, though I swear it's not actually in my voice. And I suspect I just sounded like a fair target. But there were preachers, and and then they all start arguing with each other about whether there was violence in the Bible and things of that ilk. <laughs> This was in Milwaukee, you said? Yeah, well, yes. So I I don't think I'm going back to that station. So I'm just warning you guys, you better be really nice to me. Sue Grafton. After A is for alibi came B is for burglar. Now, there yes. was a break, which there often is, between a first and a second novel. What you did, though, in the novel was you took Kinsey out of Santa Teresa and put her in Florida. Yes. Uh, had you Did you take trips to Florida and work the whole thing out I that had way? been in Florida briefly some years before, and I couldn't at that point afford to go back down there to do the research, so I just depended on sense memory for that. But the gap between A and B was because when I wrote A, I had nothing to lose. I figured the worst that would happen is I could fail at this. And suddenly, I got a review in Newsweek about Fainted. And at that point, I got kind of self-conscious. And it just froze me up. So, as I say, it took me a couple of years to coax my soul back into my body so that I could start writing again. And B is for Burglar won a whole bunch of awards, the uh, Seamus Award, the yes. Anthony Award. Yes. Well, I think I had heard later that, that A is for Alibi got a, a bit of attention, but I was not nominated for anything, and so they all felt so guilty when B is for Burglar came along. They oh, it gave me some presents for that one. How have the critics treated you? They have been kindly, which is not to say I don't take my licks like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Once in a while, you so offend somebody's sensibilities that they come after you. And those reviews, you can tell you have just triggered somebody's stuff, you know, and they mm-hmm. decide to take you to task. There was a, a woman reviewer, as a matter of fact, in some, probably Texas, who referred to B is for boring And I'm waiting for her. In my travels, I am certain our paths will cross. It is best not to be tacky to a mystery writer because we have ways of getting even. Kenzie Milhone has a real life of her own, I think, which which is one of the things that makes her more interesting than a good many fictional detectives. 
her peculiar quasi romance with her 82 year old landlord. Oh, is he darling? <laughs> oh, he's a, yeah, he's a real sweetie pie. I hope you're not going to kill him off. No, but you know he is 82, and we got 20 years to go here with these books, so I can't. <laughs> I, I'm hoping to keep him in good health, but life is uh, not predictable either. What I love about Henry, and he is an invented character. He did not come from anybody in my life. But certainly I see him as a vital, healthy person. And it's fun for me to write about somebody in their 80s who is not feeble uh, and not in any way incapacitated. He is a real live wire. And I know that he and Kinsey, in one book she talks about the fact that they view each other across this 50-year age gap with great interest and all with great decorum. I mean, they would never cross any line, but there is an odd sexual attraction between the two of them. And it takes the form of a father-daughter relationship in some ways. But when I wrote Ephes for Fugitive, I had gotten all the way to the last page of the book before I understood it was a book about fathers. And it was her way of understanding Understanding her relationship to Henry. Kinsey herself is a strange mixture of uh, a bit of a health nut. She certainly yeah. does a lot of exercise, but she drinks a good deal, and I believe she smokes cigarettes. Isn't oh, she never. Cool? She oh, doesn't. Eek. Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking of someone else. <laughs> no, she's not a smoker, and she generally drinks cheap wine. I'm trying to upgrade her taste a tiny bit, but <laughs> readers are funny. They write you letters if your character drinks too much, so you have to watch that a little bit. And usually her her interest in physical fitness is to defy the laws of gravity. As She is not passionate about exercise. I think she does it like many of us to just offset the aging process mm-hmm. where possible. She is not a fitness fiend. Would you say she looks like you? I don't know. I hope she's better looking. I think her hair is shorter because she talks about cutting it every six weeks with a pair of nail scissors, whether she needs it or not. And you know she doesn't wear makeup, which I personally admire. You know, I think that's terrific. She is not a vain creature by any stretch of the imagination. She's thinner than I am. And she eats worse, I tell you. She will never gain weight, so she can eat junk food. I've had to give up. All kinds of fat, sea, and salt. That's no fun at all. But she, I let her eat what she wants to. Is she ever going to get remarried? Nope. She'll probably never have a pet either. I gave her in uh, Eas for evidence, I gave her an air fern. An air fern requires no care whatsoever, and it already made her nervous, you know, to have that much responsibility. <laughs> and I doubt she will have children, although I'm intending to give her Zias for zero. She may do anything she pleases, and it may not even be a mystery. It just may be the the grand finale of Kinsey Milhone. But she does hang out a good deal in sleazy saloons. That's right. Why do so many detectives hang out so much in sleazy saloons? Well, I think that's where perhaps the truth is. I don't know. (laughs) She actually hangs out a fair amount with the rich, too, which I think are just as amazing to her as the sleaze bags in the world. I think the rich are interesting. Did you have any any kind of uh, relation similar to the aunt who raised Kinsey Milhon? No, and in fact, I had parents who lived, they're both dead now, but I was thinking about that today. There was a sort of symbolic logic to having the parents nuked, <laughs> really. <laughs> uh, partly because I really don't want to deal with family situations. I don't want Kinsey going home for Thanksgiving. I like her quite isolated in the world. It serves my purposes. And it's one reason, frankly, why I don't get her involved in romance very often, because I don't want to write a mystery novel full of witty repartee with lovers, you know, whipping up little gourmet treats for each other. So 
I lost Spencer. Yeah. It's easier just to keep her single and, and happy about it. There's a kind of melancholy quality to to a lot of these books and to to Kinsey's own reaction to the people she meets and the events that overtake them. Is that deliberate? I think it is because I would like to believe the mystery novel can be a, a vehicle for observing how the world works, and not just the world, but the dark side of the world. So it is possible that her view is a bit jaundiced. I don't think she sees us at our, our best. Well, dealing with crime and criminals all the time, That's I guess right. not. It's, yeah, not, not nice stuff. Do you feel that people are trying to make you into a political spokesperson? I suspect there is some inclination to interpret me in political terms, and that's fine. I don't set about making political statements because I'm trying to tell good stories, and I would not, I'm never interested in distorting a storyline or altering a character to hit political marks. I am not interested in being politically correct. I think the truth is very untidy, and and that's what interests me more. I don't think the world lines up properly, and thank God for that. So in, in telling these stories, I am not interested in politics. I, I keep saying politicians are the, the biggest fiction writers in this country. I wish they would get off my turf. You know, they. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to tell stories. At least I'm honest about the fact that I'm making it up. They're out there promoting this stuff that's no more true than what I say, and I think I'm doing a better job of it. Sue Grafton, I'd like to ask a little bit about how you create a mystery. I mean, as someone who occasionally tries to sit down and develop plots for myself of other things, do you know, for example, who the villain is going to be, or are you surprised? Do you construct the entire thing outline by outline, or do you just wing it? I do a combination. I know who done what to whom. I know why. I know what it's supposed to look like. I try desperately to fool the reader as honorably as possible. I live in horror that it's totally transparent from page two. I outline where I need to, but I find that beginnings are easy and endings are easy, and it's the middle that torments a writer. And that's the place where I try to like let the book guide me to some extent. I think one needs to work in some sort of framework with a mystery because I think winging it is very hazardous stuff. At the same time, if I knew everything that was going to happen, I'd be too bored to begin. In the case of F is for Fugitive, you knew who the villain who yes. was from the beginning. Yes. And I know in G... Also, uh, sometimes what gets altered is the backstory. It's like, and that really gets tricky. If I've laid out a certain portion of the book and then I decide the, that the motivation is off, I have to go back and reconstruct it so it will fit what I've already done because I'm way too lazy to trash it and start again. But uh, I think many mystery writers are fairly good at structuring. For smart, that's what we do. The process you describe is almost identical to the method described by John D. McDonald, the late John D. McDonald. Uh -huh. He said, I always know the start of the story and I always know the end of the story, but I don't know what goes in, yeah. in between and I only find out when I write it.
I know the overall story. I haven't the faintest idea what's going to go on from day to day. And I, I use a method that Tony Hillerman has described in that he says he blocks out about six moves ahead of himself. And I think Elmer Leonard works the same way, perhaps more free form than I. But in effect, it's like driving in fog. You, you move forward through the fog. And as you move forward, your headlights illuminate the path in front of you. The beauty of having a word processor is that you do always have ultimate control over that beginning, middle, and end. So if you get to chapter 18 and you realize you have erred early on, you can go back and make the whole of it come together as you need it to do. Does this mean that you work from a detailed outline? No. It means that I'm flying by the seat of my pants. I keep a journal for each book. And this is like a long letter to myself in which I describe the process of writing a book. So when I get to the end of I is for Innocent, I will have a journal about the writing of that book that will be three times longer than the book itself. I call it my protracted whining. <laughs> I log in every day and talk about what it feels like to be writing that particular section of a book. I also will lay out all the possibilities for a scene. I lay out motivations. I lay out character biographies. And, and through that, I begin to piece together the overall structure in addition to the day-to-day -day details of how the writing is going. Have you ever considered publishing one of these? It seems to me it would, it, it would be fascinating for uh, would-be writers, for uh, English lit students at universities. It's and possible. So forth. I'm I'm leaving my papers. This sounds so pretentious, but it's true. To Boston University because they ask me. You know. I think when I read back over these journals, they're so tedious and so boring, it would just make you faint. I do think it would give you an insight into my insecurities and that sort of thing. And, and I suppose from an academic point of view, for a scholar to watch how a book comes together might be moderately interesting, but not very. <laughs> do you ever wake up in the middle of the night and, and turn on a light and scribble, oh my God, I should have had her turn left at that juncture instead of right? I, I don't wake up and turn the light on and scribble, but certainly in the dead of night, right brain will give me information. And those are all recorded in the journal. Many entries in the journal start Last night in the dead of night, RB, right brain, told me, right brain will remind me that it's raining. This little voice comes, don't forget it's been raining. Or don't forget she's still wearing her all-purpose dress and has to change her clothes. And it's like like having a gift laid on my pillow, like a little rose. So I treasure that because those are things that I don't consciously keep track of. Uh, since you mentioned Hillerman, there are an awful lot of mystery writers out there today, including some very, very good ones. Do you have a particular set of favorites? I love Dutch Leonard, Elmore Leonard, Tony Hillerman, Dick Francis, Ruth Rendell. Outside of the mystery field, I read who everybody else reads, Ann Tyler, Tom Wolfe. Ruth Rendell is probably my favorite mm -hmm. because I think she is such a master constructionist. I think her stories are complex, and I think her characterization is incredible. She just has a real mastery of what she's doing. There were a number of women writers writing about private eyes, uh, Marsha Muller, Mickey Friedman, Julie Smith, Shelley Singer. Do you see your works fitting in with them, or do you see the distinction between a woman writing about a woman and a hard-boiled detective? Oh, that's a tough question, because I know those women. We all hang out together, right. and it's hard. Sometimes I think a writer is the least qualified person to make judgments about how we fit into anything. You know, I, 
I work real hard to stay in my own soul and stay in my own gut and not get into analytical matters. So I don't know if I can give you a fair answer to that. I mean, I could give you a, perhaps a far-flung one, but I don't think it would be truthful. It seems to me that the hard-boiled female private eye is a new direction that women writers are beginning to be attracted to. I See, I don't see it's better, different. It is unlike other things, and I admire Julie's work. I admire Shelley Singer. I just try not to get into very many judgments about other writers because I know each of us is struggling with the same set of problems in mm -hmm. some form. I just solve mine differently. It seems to me that there's a, a certain natural convergence here that has to happen. You have a background in TV and film writing, including doing mysteries. And you've written these six mystery novels and a number of short stories about Kinsey Milhone. Yes. Why isn't there a, a Kinsey Milhone TV series? I would turn it on tonight. Ah, uh, but it would turn out like all the other TV mystery shows. It would be drug cartels and gun battles, and I don't think that's what I'm about. For one thing... Steve Humphrey and I have worked in television far too long to do it to ourselves. We're too smart to sell it to mm -hmm. television. Uh, I don't care about the money. That, the money doesn't interest me, if it means selling out Kinsey Milhone, because I have 20 years to go on this, yeah. and I can't afford to have television do what they would do to her. Film might be a different matter if the right deal ever came along, and that would have to do more with casting than with, ca yes. with cash. You have had feelers in. That's yes, pretty obvious. Yes, yes. Uh, usually the casting suggestions for television are so absurd, if you know who Kinsey Milhone is, that it's just not worth discussing. Suzanne Plachette is suggested, and uh, Sally Struthers and Loretta Sweat. And I, I think to myself, have you read these books? Do you know who I am or what is going on here? So, and, the, you know, it's better to just not get into that because once you work in television, you know that you have no control whatsoever over what's done. And I prefer not to trivialize this woman. I feel clever enough to have invented somebody who now supports me, and I don't think it would be smart to uh, take her down those alleyways. If there were movies, who would you prefer? I always pictured Sigourney Weaver or Deborah Winger. Whether those actresses would have any interest, I a little doubt, as they say where I come from. But somewhere there is an actress who is is going to end up being Kinsey Melhone, and uh, she might be in junior high school now putting on acne medication and <laughs> with braces on her teeth, but we'll get there eventually. You've taken this series, which started, I, I believe it had a relatively modest reception at the beginning, and it has built into uh, one of the very, very successful literary phenomena of the day. If you have any particular comment on that or any notion as to why. I haven't a clue. And again, you see, this is a, a sort of meta question, and it, and it asks me to step outside myself and comment on something I'm not qualified to comment on, in that I don't know how Kinsey Milhone is perceived, and I don't know I don't know what the reading public is experiencing in that suddenly women writers are hot. Uh, often interviewers ask that, and I go, I'm clueless, man. I'm happy it's happening, but I don't know why. I think certainly we live in a society where women are beginning to do more things. There are women private investigators. There are women police. There are women judges and women attorneys. So I think it is time to start looking at that in fiction, and, and maybe that's part of what it's about. I think if I can judge from the letters I get, people feel an affinity with this woman private investigator because she's irreverent and she's sassy and she is independent she has a smutty mouth and that's fun 
I hope that's what it's about. We're pretty much out of time, but I wanted to ask you about um, Kinsey Milhone's all-purpose black dress. Does it exist? Oh, yes. I own it. I bought it actually in Columbus, Ohio in about 1979, and I paid $98 for it, which was the most I had ever paid for a dress. It is just a remarkable garment, but it is largely polyester, and my children have made me promise never to wear it again. But I keep swearing I'm going to take it with me on my tour and at least hold it up to the public eye so we can all see what this amazing dress looks like. Is it shiny? Slightly. And truly, you can wrinkle it in your hand and let go, and it springs right back. It's remarkable. Before we leave, what other weird little things of Kinsey's are also yours? Oh, well, I do own the VW that she's currently driving. She is not on my insurance. I own two of the handguns. I own the little thirty two caliber Colt she had originally. And I own the Davis, but I kept getting letters from gun experts, largely male, who assured me this was not the proper gun for her at all. So in H, she gets a new one, or G, I guess the end of G, and you don't see it again until I is for innocent. We have many, many of those issues in common, not all of which I'm willing to tell in public. Well, I have just one question remaining. And that is, what happens to Kinsey Milhone on the next page? In a much broader sense, is she going to age? Is she going uh. to evolve in her relationships and so forth? Or or are these books, I hope you won't consider this derogatory, but, <laughs> but are, are, you, are you planning to stamp them out more or less cookie-cutter oh, fashion? Oh, never, never, never. I don't know where she is going. She will age one year for every two and a half books. Sometimes you'll be there on her birthday and sometimes you won't. But... Certainly she will evolve, and I don't know. I think she will evolve at the same rate I do. I'm trying very hard to make each book different without being straining for the effect. I am not interested in writing A is for Alibi 26 times. I would be bored senseless. The challenge is that I have called my shots up front. You know, I have announced I am doing the alphabet. Yes, folks, I am. A, B, C. And it took people till about D to get it. And I still have people going, are you doing the alphabet? I'm going, yes, I am. And they say to me, are you really going to Z? And I think, no, I'm going to quit in the middle and wreck your bookshelf. But I am going to Z is for zero. And the challenge is, can she do it? No TV series nor movie was ever produced featuring Kinsey Milhone. The final book, Z is for Zero, was never written due to her illness with cancer. As her daughter said, now the alphabet ends with Y. To contact Richard Walensky, please write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com. Or find the Book Waves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>